In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we encounter the reality that the gospel story has the power to transform every single aspect of our story. And that's exactly what we were made for. This is Ephesians, and we're Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. DNA. That word is so familiar now. Uh, but 70 years ago, it, it wouldn't have been. Certainly, we, we, uh, the concept of it was, was known, but there was no understanding of what it, what it looked like, right? Like, and now we, we have mRNA, and if I'm wrong on that, you just so sue me. But yeah, we have like, we have all, like, we're, we understand DNA at this, this higher level than, than we ever did, did before. For the most part, and there's exceptions to this this rule, uh, but your DNA sequence, right? That sequence of uh, you know, however it appears on paper, those letters, that DNA sequence remains relatively the same. There may be slight changes to the sequence over time, and some uh, rare exceptions, like bone marrow transplants and things like that. There can be extreme changes to DNA sequence, but for the most part, what you're born with is what you have sequentially, that that code that is yours is unique to you throughout your life. Our DNA physically, right, from birth, not only determines who we are then as those tiny little babies, but it determines so much of who we will be, who we'll become. Our DNA has, has an impact on our present, on our today, and on our future, our, our tomorrow. And when you become a Christian, your spiritual DNA, if you will, if you'll give me the liberty of using that terminology, your spiritual DNA is transformed. It's no longer uh, the spiritual DNA of the flesh, but now it's the DNA of the spirit. It's quite literally gospel DNA that you now possess if you are a true child of of God. And that gospel DNA that is reborn in the people of God, it never changes. It's the same. It stays the same. And uh, it is ours without exception if we have faith in Christ. And our gospel DNA determines who we are today and who we will be tomorrow. That's part of our story. And, and in the book of Ephesians, Paul is showing the church at Ephesus and then all those who have been blessed by that letter since that, our, uh, that the gospel story transforms our story. And part of the gospel story is that, that, that internal identity transformation, that DNA transformation of the lives of God's people. Our DNA has changed, and with that comes change today and change in the future. Our gospel DNA has implications for our now and our tomorrow. So, Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Ten verses, they'll kind of break up. We'll have a verse at the very front and a verse at the very end, and then in the middle, two equal size kind of sections. 
The first verse for us is verse 3, and it's going to show us that our gospel DNA originates from our Father. It comes from, from God. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your identity transformation, your gospel DNA, originates not from within yourself, but from God. Just like physical DNA, right, is a combination in you coming from a biological mother and a biological father, so the DNA of the gospel is passed down to you through Jesus from the Father. But unlike your physical DNA, which is unique to you uh, and different from everyone else, gospel DNA is the same in all of God's people. And not only that, but it is perfectly passed down from the Father and it, and it never changes. It never changes because God never changes. Every good and every perfect gift, including our gospel DNA, our gospel transformation, is from above. It's from God coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God never changes, therefore our gospel DNA doesn't change. It's the same, just like Jesus, yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13.8. And so that gospel DNA, that, that internal transformation that has happened by grace through faith in Jesus is an unchangeable, immovable, unstealable, unquenchable force at work inside of you that cannot be stolen, cannot be stopped, because it comes from an unchanging Father through an unchanging Savior. That's the origin of your gospel DNA, of my gospel DNA. It comes from our Father. Now, Paul turns to those, the implications of that. So we have this gospel DNA. What does that mean? And he's going to kind of in two sections, in verses 4 through 6, he's going to show us how our gospel DNA determines who we will be tomorrow. And then in verses 7 through 9, he's going to show us how our gospel DNA determines who we are today. It has an impact on our future. It has an impact on our present. First, don't miss, though, he's already shown us a, a nugget, a strand of our gospel DNA in verse 3. He says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Part of your identity now is blessed. Hashtag too blessed to stress, but way infinitely more beautiful than some catchy hashtag. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We'll come back to that here in just a second. But Paul is elaborating on what those blessings are in the next uh, eight verses and even beyond. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, to be clear, there, these promises are not only future promises, they're also already promises. There's, there's uh, a way of talking about the promises of God in the gospel as already and not yet. There's, there's ways in which, and we'll see, there's three things specifically that we have promised perfectly in our future that are already 
imperfectly happening in us today. So while they are promises for tomorrow, they're promises for tomorrow that are already beginning to be fulfilled in us today. Already, but not yet. The first is the promise that we will be holy and blameless before God. That's a future promise in its perfection. That one day you will be made perfect, child of God. No more sin. No more shame. No more walking out of step with the the Spirit of Christ. You will be like Jesus 24-7 for eternity. Everything about you will be transformed into Christ's likeness. You will be perfect and blameless. But today, child of God, you are positionally righteous. God looks at you not seeing your sin and righteousness and its uh, roller coaster, if your life's anything like mine, right? Seasons of, of righteousness and, and sinfulness. He sees the perfect work of Jesus. And therefore, your righteousness today positionally is not your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. This is an imperfect illustration, but the way I, uh, I would maybe help myself wrap my mind around it this week is my kids positionally are sustained, right? Like they have everything they need for life. Uh, they have food, a dry place. They don't get any of that on their own, but they have it positionally. But one day, literally, they will be, Lord willing, self-sustaining individuals. What won't change, right, is that they'll have all their needs, Lord willing, provided for when they're self-sustaining, just like they do right now when they're not self-sustaining. Again, an imperfect illustration, but positionally, even today, even though they can, they are not self-sustaining individuals, they are positionally sustained. Today, you are positionally righteous. If you are a child of God, God sees you in the perfection of Christ. But one day, in glory, you will be actually perfect before God, holy and blameless, already not yet. Two, we are right now, today, adopted sons. Now, that's not that's gender-specific for a reason, and here's why. Because when that was written, only sons could inherit well, the, the wealth of the Father. What Paul is saying when he says that male and female, Jew and Gentile, are made sons of God is he's saying that there's a future to this promise as well. You're not only sons today of God, but you are future inheritors of all that belongs to God. Already, not yet. Sons and daughters, right? in that cultural day, treated as only sons could be, inheritors of the kingdom. That's a promise for our today and a promise for our future. And then lastly, we'll bring glory to God. One day that will happen perfectly. But even now, and and I've even seen it this week in your lives, there there are times where our lives right now already are bringing glory to God. Even today, as we sang his praises to one another. The Bible is very clear that that brought glory to God. So your lives are already imperfectly bringing glory to God, but one day they will perfectly bring glory to God. Your entire existence for all of eternity 
will be for the glory of God. Already, not yet. So verses 4 through 6 in this, you know, already not yet way point us to how our gospel DNA changes who we are, determines who we are tomorrow, while at the same time showing us a few things about who we are today. Verses 7 through 9 are more explicitly about who we are today. Our gospel DNA determines who we are today. Now, we've already seen some of those DNA, how our DNA has changed. We talked about the word blessed in verse 3. That applies to you today. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are positionally righteous. That is part of your DNA today. When God looks at you, I cannot overemphasize this. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is yours. That is your identity today, child of God. You are an adopted child of God. You are in the family of God. I think we say these things, especially if you're brought up in church, so frequently that the magnitude of them kind of dissolves away. That you're a member of the family of God. That's, in, that's insanely beautiful. That's part of your DNA. We already saw that. And you are already imperfectly bringing glory to God. Additionally, as we saw, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. This is such a great promise in verse 3 that we're coming back to now because this is your DNA if you're a child of God. You are blessed with everything that comes with walking in step with the Spirit. You are blessed with everything needed to walk in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is at work in all the people of God and what He does, along with other things, but primarily is He points us to Jesus and He empowers us to become like Jesus. So everything that you need to look like Jesus and live like Jesus and act like Jesus, God has blessed you with that. He's given it to you. It's yours. And that verse goes on to say that it is in the heavenly places. In other words, it's locked up tighter than Fort Knox. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can steal it from you. It is secured for you. And it is in Christ, not you. You don't have to sustain the power of those blessings. You don't have to earn the, the, the benefit of those blessings. It is Christ who has earned it for you. It is his power that sustains it. So you're blessed. A couple other things we saw in verses four through six about our identity today is that we're chosen by God. If you are a Christian today, God chose you. Now, this is the doctrine of election, and we're not going to get into the doctrine of election today. It has been interpreted in a lot of different ways throughout church history. I love the conversation. I'll have it with anyone who wants to have it. But here's what I want you to see, that the doctrine of election, when understood properly, is done in love. You saw it. In love, he predestined. In love, he chose. And so when the doctrine of election maybe makes you feel uneasy, it's not because God got it wrong, but it's because either our understanding of election is wrong or our understanding of love is wrong. Because the Bible tells us that the doctrine of election 
The fact that he chose and predestined people for himself. And again, I'm willing to talk outside of this about what that means. But what that looks like is that it is a loving act from God. That's the Bible. It's right there in front of you. You can read it. We're also graced. He's poured out his glorious grace upon us. That's your identity today. You are a recipient of grace. The acronym, which sells grace a little bit short, but helps you begin to wrap your mind around it, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Somebody gave me that as a teenager. I kind of held on to it to help me understand what grace is. The riches of God, the blessings of God, the promises of God poured out upon you because Christ paid for it, because Jesus made the, the payment. We're beloved. You see the capital B there in, in your Bible? If you have one, it's, it's likely capital B. That's because that's talking about Jesus in verse 6. Beloved. Jesus is beloved by God, but it points us to what Paul also said to the church at Rome when he quoted the prophet Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. He's saying God's going to save for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Those who were, who, who were, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. We are beloved by God. That's your identity today. God doesn't see you and shrink back. God doesn't see you and say, oh, Paul Bokel again? Like last night, I lost it. It's the true confessions every week. But, but I'm a sinner, right? Like I am so much a sinner. I got real cold with my wife and I got real cold with my kids and I hurt my wife. I did. I hurt her. I hurt her feelings. And God did not throw up his hands. Right? And walk away and say, I'm done with him. I'm his beloved. That comes with patience and grace and kindness towards me, even warts and all. Beloved. You're beloved by God. He extends the list in verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. You are redeemed by God. Your DNA today is redeemed. That word quite simply means you've been ransomed from captivity and somebody else paid the ransom. I'm reading a novel right now, it's way overdue, Along Came a Spider, and they, there's a ransom that's paid, right, to get the girl back. It all goes uh, uh, south, and it doesn't work out. But, but there's a $10 million ransom paid at, at one point early in the novel to purchase back a kidnapped victim. Your ransom was paid with the life of Christ. He paid your ransom on the cross to purchase your freedom. Freedom from what? The next word, the next piece of our identity gives us that. We're forgiven. You're forgiven today. That forgiveness is a freedom from guilt and shame. Your redemption, your forgiveness has to do with Jesus paying the cost to set you free from sin and guilt and shame. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 and 1. That's your identity today. That's hard to believe sometimes. That's hard to live in sometimes. God doesn't condemn us, but we condemn us. There may be people in our families or people in our friendship circles or previous relationships who condemn us. We live in a world that is constantly condemning. We ourselves are guilty of condemning others, judging others. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's your identity, child of God. So if you're carrying guilt and shame, welcome to the club. I am too, so I'm not not condemning you for that. But what I'm also saying is that when I carry guilt and shame and condemnation with me, I am not walking in the reality of who I am in Christ. You're no longer condemned. And that's hard to believe and that's hard to recognize. And and maybe it's hard for you to see today. But the good news is the last piece of our identity expressed in these verses is that we are enlightened. That means that our eyes are being opened to see the truth of who God is and what he is doing. He's making known to us the mysteries of his will. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And then we sang about it. That's the mystery. We didn't even plan that. God's faithful. The mystery, right, that that Paul will talk about when he writes to the church at Colossae, most likely Tychicus is carrying this letter too with him as he carries Ephesians. We talked about that last week. He's on his way through Ephesus to Colossae. He's got a letter to a guy named Philemon as well. He's carrying those along with a a former slave named Onesimus who's being returned, who's going back to Philemon's house. And he says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. Here's the mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Again, uh, Jesus lives inside of me, right? Like Sunday school has just... For me, I'm, maybe I'm the only one, but it's just made that such a, just such a simplistic thing. And like, whatever, okay, I get it. That's what we talk. Jesus lives inside of me. What Paul is saying is that this is a mystery beyond the furthest reaches of our minds to comprehend on their own that you, a sinner, me, a sinner, would be the permanent eternal residence. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Right? That He would, right, condescend into the slums which are my heart and give me redemption and forgiveness and take up residence here. And God, this is an already not yet promise, one day we will understand the gospel with absolute unswerving, unshaking clarity. Inside, outside, frontwards, backwards, we won't doubt it for a second. We'll believe it with every fiber of our being. Not there yet. Uh, Right? Amen? Not there yet. I struggle to believe this at times, but God is in the process right now 
of opening our hearts, opening our eyes, opening our minds more and more and more progressively to know the realities of the gospel, to know that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. See, with that enlightenment comes hope. With that enlightenment comes confidence. With that enlightenment comes beauty. God is opening our eyes to the mystery. See, it turns out, I'm already laughing about it. I just took a DNA test. I used that joke in 2021, but now it's 2022, so I get one more crack at it. And it turns out I'm 100% blessed. 100% chosen. By God. This is who I am. This is who you are, child of God. Beloved, graced, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened. This is who you are. Right now, today, this is your reality. And the source of it all is God through Jesus, which means there's no lack. This happened not according to a bank account that's like scraping the bottom of the barrel, but according to the riches of Jesus and God's grace, infinite grace, which he kind of trickled down. No, he lavished upon us in all, all all-encompassing wisdom and insight Your identity is not held together by duct tape, right? Your gospel DNA, right, is not teetering on the edge of of being reality or maybe not being reality. It's untouchable. It's inexhaustible. It's founded on a foundation that cannot be shaken. Our God, who never changes, our Savior, who never changes. So our gospel DNA determines who we are today. Our gospel DNA determines who we will be tomorrow. But in the last verse, Paul opens our eyes to see one more thing. See, up till now, this has been very horizontal, this discussion. Or very vertical, this discussion. It's been about us and God and how God has personally transformed our lives. And that's one very beautiful part of Christianity. That you can have a personal, individual relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But now it's about to get communal. It's about to turn horizontal, even cosmic, as he closes out this section. Because he says, which he set forth this plan, this grace that he's poured out, all of these blessings that he's poured out, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He's saying this has always been God's plan, and there's an end game that God has in this plan. And he tells us what it is in verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There's an end game of unity for the people of God. There's an end game of reconciliation and unification of all things horizontal. The relationships around you. Uniting all things on earth. Gospel DNA is shared DNA. 
you are in a personal relationship with Jesus if you're a child of God, yes, but it can't end there. It's anti-gospel for it to end there. It doesn't just impact a vertical relationship with God and transform a vertical relationship with God. It transforms a horizontal relationship that you have with those around you. In fact, Ephesians is set up very much to emphasize this vertical relationship with God for the first three chapters and then to switch gears and talk more primarily about those horizontal relationships around us. But you see both all through the book. What's more emphasized here is the vertical relationship. What's more emphasized later is the horizontal relationship, but both matter in the kingdom of God. Both are results of the transformation of of our DNA into gospel DNA. You share gospel DNA today, right now, with people in Thailand, with people in Uganda, with people in Nigeria, with people in the Ukraine, and people in Guatemala, and people in Kenya You share gospel DNA with people in poverty and people who are royalty. You share gospel DNA with single women and men who have been widowed in their old age. You share gospel DNA with families of four and with newlyweds. The point I'm making is that the gospel horizontally is unifying people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people from every class. People of both genders, people from all age groups, people from all experiences, people who lived before you, people who will live after you. There's a horizontal, unified DNA for the people of God. Which side note is why racism and classism and ageism and sexism are actually anti-gospel ideas. And why we as Christians who are pro-gospel are by definition, right? Or should be by definition against racism, against classism, against ageism, against any of the isms that would divide the people of God. Our gospel DNA is shared horizontally, but also, and this is where we close most excitingly to me, It's not just uniting all things on earth, it's uniting all things in heaven as well. There's a cosmic nature to the power of the gospel. Cosmic nature, the entire cosmos, everything that exists, the universe, was corrupted when Adam and Eve sinned against God. Like, it wasn't just our hearts that got broken, right? The natural order of the universe got broken. Remember the cursing? The cursing wasn't just the woman and the man and the snake. There was going to be hard labor in the fields. There was going to be all sorts of of things that are now out of whack from the way that they're supposed to be cosmically changed. But one day, there will be the consummation of all things. Not just spiritual renewal, but physical renewal. In Romans again, he says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. But there's hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
the consummation of all things, the putting back together of all things, doesn't just end with your soul. It carries through to your body. It carries through to the world around us, the physical world around us, all of it set right. One day there will be no more cancer. One day there will be no more stomach viruses. There will be no more coronaviruses. One day there will be no more earthquakes. One day there will be no more famines. One day there will be no more meteors striking things. It will all be put to right. Spiritually. Communally. Cosmically. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the total mending of all things. And that total mending of all things comes only through Jesus. Jesus is the ticket to the mending of all things. We'll hit these verses here in a couple weeks in depth, but hear them today. And he put all things under Jesus's feet, right? All things are under his feet. That means he is supreme over them and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. We're the body of Christ. That's where that lingo comes from. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And we'll, we'll dive into this more in depth in the coming weeks, but here's the short of it. Jesus is supreme over all, and he is setting all things right in his time by filling all of creation with his fullness. So Jesus has everything inside of him that that is needed for satisfaction, for life, for reconciliation, for redemption of all things, for everything to be mended and put back together. It's all in Jesus, not in me, not in you, in Jesus, the fullness of him. But the fullness of Jesus that is filling the earth is filling the earth through his body, the church. He says the church is the manifestation of his fullness. That's such a gift, such a beautiful thing that you as the uh, people of God, me as the members of God's family, we fill up the earth with the fullness of God. We fill up Barbersville. We fill up the tri-state with the fullness of God. I watched it happen this week. As homeless people who who would have potentially frozen to death on Friday night were put up in hotel rooms. I didn't spearhead that. The body of Christ did. We delivered food boxes to people a few weeks back. People who otherwise, one lady testified, it was either going to be presents or a Christmas Day meal. I didn't spearhead that. The body of Christ did. The fullness of God filling up Barbersville and points surrounding. You know how it's, it, we're filling up Barbersville and points surrounding? Through suffering, pain, heartache, right? As we stand joyfully, even in the pain and in the suffering, believing in faith, the gospel through death, and loss, and hurt, and we fill up the world around us with the fullness of Jesus.
We display the fullness of him who fills all in all, and that's what we were made for. So if you're not a Christian, right? Trust Jesus today and be part of the fullness. Trust Jesus today and be part of the family. But to all who received him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to become part of the family of God, the fullness of God, by grace through faith in Jesus. Believe him today, trust Jesus today, be saved, become part of his family. If you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you about that. Josh would love to talk to you about that, um, how you can become one. Child of God, three things. Know whose you are. If we're going to fill up this community, if we're going to fill up the world around us with the fullness of Jesus Christ, then we must be in touch with our gospel DNA. So we need to know whose we are. You need to know who you are. And we need to be who we are. Know whose you are. Nothing can pluck you out of the hand of Jesus, which John 10 tells us is held inside the hand of the Father, this airtight, unbreakable ownership that God has on you. You're His. You belong to God. Know who you, whose you are. That'll keep you humble. Anything good that happens, it was God who did it. And it'll keep you hungry. God, I need you to be at work in my life. Know whose you are. Next, know who you are. Be aware of what the gospel says about your identity. I'll put it this way. Stop exhausting yourself trying to prove who you are. That's exhausting, isn't it? Trying to prove yourself to everyone. I know firsthand. Stop exhausting yourself trying to prove who you are and rest Breathing in who God says you are. Gospel DNA matters because there's peace there. Gospel DNA matters because there's rest there. Because the load is taken off of you. You don't have to prove anything anymore. It's already been proven. And it's yours. Know whose you are, know who you are. To know both of those things, you'll have to rest in the Word of God. You'll have to rest in prayer Rest in the spiritual disciplines of fasting and Christian community and all these things, again, as God leads you there. And then lastly, be who you are. My parents would always say when we would leave the house, it's like guilt trip city. They'd be like, remember whose you are. I mean, it's probably common. I I know other people whose parents said that too. Remember whose you are. You're a bokel. That matters. You need to really act like an idiot because we're all idiots. No, that wasn't their point. Their point was, by remembering who you belong to, you'll remember who you are. But that wasn't their end goal. Their goal was that I would be who I was supposed to be. Be who you are. (laughs) Look at this here. We read this book. It's called Thoughts That Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones. We read it with our kids. Here's, Here's my point. It's called Foolish Fish. What if one day a fish decided I've had enough of being told what I can and can't do and only being allowed in water? I want to be free. I'm going to find my fortune on land. I'm going to, I'm going to get out of here and then jumped out of the water and onto the riverbank. How far do you think that foolish fish would get? It would wriggle and flap its fins. It's pretty, gets pretty dark pretty quick. But of course, fins don't work on land. It would lie there gasping for air, and pretty soon it would die. And all the kids start crying as we read it to them. 
How free is that fish on land? Not very. You see, the fish is not built for land. And we are not built to be away from our heavenly Father. The call to be who you are. It's not a call to be restricted. It's not a call to to difficulty, although there is difficulty, right? But if you live for money, life will be difficult. If you live for affirmation, life will be difficult. If you live for yourself, life will be difficult. Life is difficult. You live for the glory of God. You live to be who God has designed you to be. Life will be difficult. But only in that place are you promised true freedom, true life. So at the ball field, at the theater, at the grocery store, at your job, that party, that hangout. We talked about this last week, how Ephesus had all these things to engage in. And the point of the church at Ephesus wasn't that they quit engaging in those things. It was that as they engaged in those things, they engaged as who they were supposed to be. They engaged as people with gospel DNA. Might that be true of us? Our gospel DNA determines who we are today and who we will be tomorrow. Might this reality of our gospel DNA fill us up individually and fill up our world around us. Father, that is my deepest longing of my heart that that Mercy Village Church and the people of Mercy Village Church And the people impacted by Mercy Village Church will be nothing more than just conduits of gospel DNA that the fullness of Jesus fills us up and fills up the world around us. That our lives truly become these these beacons of beauty, the beauty of Jesus in the world around us, which will be unique to each person who sits in these seats and unique to me and Josh standing on this stage in its specific ways it plays out. But what will be the same is that you'll get glory and Jesus will be seen as beautiful. Make that the reality. It's the name of Jesus Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.